Hello, salam, and welcome to another episode of the Ajam podcast. I'm your host, Rustin, and today I have a special guest. We are talking to Professor Mohamed Rostam, who is the Associate Professor at Carleton University and the Senior Research Fellow at the Library of Arabic Literature at New York University in Abu Dhabi. It's a pleasure to have you, Mohamed. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. For our listeners, I met Mohamed in Abu Dhabi while I was attending his lecture and he's here to talk about a man named Ainul Ghazat, who is a 12th century mystic poet, among other things, I'm sure. And Mohammed will be here to talk a little bit more about his defense of Satan or Iblis. It's very edgy stuff, Mohammed. Yeah, what a way to introduce somebody. He's going to come talk about Satan to you. <laughs> In the defense of Satan, of all things, yes. No, I mean, I'm so happy you shared your article with me because there's a lot of parallels in different literatures all over the world, as Satan as a tragic figure. And for someone like me is not necessarily familiar with the Islamic theology surrounding Satan and how, you know, somebody can defend him, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So my first question is, who is Ainul Ghazat? He's a Sufi poet. He's a mystic, but what's his life story? Where is he working? Where is he living? Who is his students? Ainul Qazat was a major legal judge. He was born and raised in Hamadan. He died in Hamadan in the year 1131. He was a very important Sufi teacher, theologian, public preacher, legal judge, philosopher, and also later on himself a Sufi master. And what makes him such a unique figure in the history of Islam is that he's writing at a period when the Islamic intellectual sciences began to take on a more synthetic kind of form, where Sufism and philosophy and theology begin to kind of come together. And so he emerges as this figure who had a synthetic project vis-a-vis -vis the Islamic intellectual tradition. His Persian writings clearly show us that he gives much of the stock imagery and symbolism that will become part and parcel of later Persian poetry and the Persian mystical tradition. Like when you think of Rumi and Attar, they're drawing on that century. Ainul Khazat is one of the main authors in the previous century before them. And at the same time, he was also a great critic of the Seljuk government. So he wasn't one of these kind of, you know, armchair intellectuals or spiritual masters hiding away in some corner saying nothing about political life. He was extremely involved in the political life of his day and age. And that's what got him killed at the end because he was just too powerful and he was too condemning of corrupt administrative practices. He was a great social philosopher too. So he really believed in distributing wealth to the poor and he hated the Seljuk government for hoarding wealth. So he's this really multifaceted personality, and somewhere amidst all of that, he also emerges as one of the greatest representatives of what is now known as, or what was then known even, as Mazhab Ishq, the school of divine love and also of human love. So he's also like one of the first theorists in the Sufi tradition to speak about a kind of mystical aesthetics. So it's a great inspiration reading him and working with him and sharing him. How does Satan fit into yeah, this? Yeah, exactly. Thing? How did that guy get here? Yeah, we're talking about <laughs> Satan and love, right? So what would be great is if you could just give a brief rundown of Satan in Islamic theology and also Ainul Ghazat's controversial stance on yes, Satan. Yes, yes, yes. 
So when we think of Satan, often I think subconsciously, growing up in, let's say, a post-Christian secular world, right? A lot of the imagery of Satan that we see uh, and receive, like in movies, like think of the exorcist, and we kind of imbibe that, and it becomes a part of our thinking about evil and things like this. And so when you hear that the Islamic tradition, for example, never ascribes evil to Satan, that might be a surprise. It comes as a surprise to Muslims when they hear that. They, they say, wait a second, you mean in the Quran it doesn't say that Satan's evil? And I say, no. It doesn't say that the word shar, evil, is never used. It's used with respect to human beings, right? That, that's interesting. Human beings have evil. So Satan's profession, it's to misguide in the Islamic tradition. You know, there's a debate in the tradition. Is he a fallen angel? He's a jinn. The Quran says he's a jinn. And, and some people say that he was a fallen angel. And again, a lot of that is informed by Christianity. Nevertheless, he was an entity that had some relationship to God. And that God creates this human being, Adam. And he tells all the angels to bow down. And there's one amongst them, this jinn. And he says, I'm not going to bow down. Everyone does that except him. And so God banishes him from paradise. And Satan in the Quran, he says to him, you know, uh, I'm going to misguide them. And I'm going to bring as many as I can to hell. So the Islamic tradition has had a pretty consistent view of, of what that means, of what Satan's role is in our lives, right? You have to watch out for him. He's an enemy. You know, don't befriend him, right? Don't do the things that, you know, Satan incites you to evil. He incites you to all kinds of bad things. So you have to avoid. And this is a very standard view. So how do we go from that kind of a view of Satan to one that seeks to exonerate him and see him as somehow good? In the Islamic tradition, the earliest text that has survived and the, the earliest author that to whom we can ascribe this view of Satan being a tragic fallen lover is Hallaj, the great Sufi martyr, whom Ainu Quzad followed very closely. He was 200 years before Ainu Quzad. And he says basically that, you know, the reason Satan did not bow down to Adam wasn't because he was disobedient. It's because he loved God too much. He said, why would I bow down to someone you've created from clay and who's a human being when you're my beloved? So the whole model changes, right? He's no longer this wicked, evil, bad person. or He's just uh, somebody, he's like, look, I can't do that. I'm sorry, you're asking me to do something that I really just can't do. I love you too much. <laughs> and the Persian Sufi tradition really ran with this, right? They're like, this is phenomenal. There's so much stock imagery that we could draw upon here. Ahmad Ghazali, who was the teacher of Ayn al-Quzad, he famously says that he who has not learned God's oneness, Tawheed, from Satan is an unbeliever, right? He's like, if you've not taken a lesson from Satan's unwavering love for God, then you've misunderstood the point of what it means to be a believer. So that's the kind of view. And uh, many later authors take that up. Many of them don't. Rumi, for example, does not take that view up. Uh, he actually has a, a critique of it. And um, many later authors in the tradition, right up to Muhammad Iqbal, uh, draw on some of the imagery, and it's a little complicated. But Enoch Khazat stands out because he accepts all of what Halaj and Ahmad Ghazali say about Satan as a tragic fallen lover. But because of this deep training he had in philosophy and theology, he matches his own intellectual theoretical doctrines with his defense of Satan. So it's very unique uh, what he's doing. And and he uses the story of Satan also to take us to another perspective, which I call a kind of meta-philosophy. The, the basic rundown of that, I think I just picked that word up from you, rundown. I've never used that before, <laughs> but it's a good word. So the rundown of that is that Satan, for Enoch Quzat, is a necessary component in the cosmic order. So it's not the question of, did Satan have the will to disobey God or not? Satan is simply there in order to balance out the cosmos in terms of the divine economy of things. So 
you can't have just all mercy. You need justice too. They have to come together. The Sufi tradition, they believe that God has a stern and severe side to him, which is tantamount to like a father-like persona. And then overriding gentleness and mercy, which is tantamount to a mother-like persona. And Enoch Kozat says, because of those two divine qualities that are at play in the universe, one of them needs to be actualized in a particular individual. Let's call him Satan. right? So in one beautiful passage, he says, I take it you've heard that he was a fallen angel. You know, this is the way he talks. Like it's like it's such common knowledge, you know, but the way he's saying it, he goes, yeah, that's that that's what his profession was, right? But he has another job to do here and we have to help him, he says. This is the really strange part. We have to help him do his job, right? So what does that mean? Is he is he endorsing like misguidance? No, not at all. What he's saying is he's saying you have to first of all see what Satan's role in the cosmos is, right? It's the very positive element of allowing for God's light to enter into the world through one medium. And that's the medium that we see as darkness, but in reality, it's just the severe hand of God, which is actually mercy, but it comes in a different garb. And then he juxtaposes that with the light of the prophet. So in in Enoch Uzzat's cosmology, there are these two complementary poles. For Enochuzat, Iblis or Satan is the opposite of light. No, he's not. You know what he says? He says he is light. He's not the opposite of light because there's no absolute darkness, right? right? Okay. He's a shadow. He says God is pure light. When that light manifests itself, it has rays. Those rays that extend, he says that's the light of Muhammad, which is standard Islamic uh, thinking, right? That you have the light of the Prophet. That's what mediates God's mercy to the world's. But you'll notice that no light rays fall upon a place but that a shadow is cast. And he goes, that shadow, that's that's this guy that we're calling Iblis. But you need both. There is no light in the world if there's no shadow, and there's no shadow if there are no rays. So you see how they work together? It's all about complementarity. For Enokozat, is Iblis begrudgingly taking on this responsibility? Well, he loves it. In one passage, he makes Iblis say, if others flee from your assault, I'll gladly take it with my neck. It's beautiful. Actually, Enokozat has the most sustained defense of Iblis in the entire Islamic tradition. And so he says that Satan, not only did he happily take this punishment, he becomes such a tragic figure on some level, it's almost like a Christ-like figure. Even though the Christ-like figure for Enoch Uzzat comes much closer to the Prophet. The Prophet in Enoch Uzzat is very close to what Christ is in Christianity because in one passage he says the Prophet has to literally take on the sins of human beings, right? So he says that the Prophet has a sin and Iblis also has a sin. He goes, Iblis's sin is that he fell in love with God. So he has to suffer now the consequences of that. And he goes, Muhammad's sin is that God fell in love with him. Right, So he also has to enact what that's going to mean now and also in the hereafter. How is this related to other, let's say, traditions? Yes. For example, like Gnosticism and Christianity. I'm thinking of the Gospel of Judas. Like yeah. Judas, he does the betrayal of Jesus because right, 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 right. he's asked to do so and he's the only person who yeah. could do such a thing. Yeah. First of all, how can we place the figure of Iblis mm-hmm. in other sort of esoteric religious traditions. Sure, sure, sure. And also, how can we make sense of Enoch Ghazad's representation in terms of other sort of tragic, yes. sympathetic representations of yes. Satan? I remember you were mentioning like Milton's Paradise Lost or in Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. What makes Enoch Ghazad so unique compared to, let's say, some ancient Gnostic doctrines or even something like uh, Milton's Paradise Lost is the question of love, right? So 
not only does Satan take on the qualities that are imposed upon him by virtue of balancing out this cosmic order because he wants to, it's because he loves God so much that he wants to now take on the qualities that the beloved gives to him. So if it's curses, then fine, curse me. It's a total selfless love. That's why in one passage, Enoch says that the lover is bi ikhtiyar. He has no choice. And so he says, if you want to learn what love is, look at Iblis. So not only does Iblis embody love, but he now becomes our teacher for love. So Enoch in one passage, he says, he's not just the teacher of the angels. He teaches us. He's, he's your teacher. He's my teacher. Uh, he goes, the angels, of course they bow down to Adam. But why would the teacher bow down? The teacher has to be more pochte than the, than the students. The students are calm. They're not, they can't bow down. They cannot. But this teacher, how could he ever bow down? And so he's also teaching us. He's teaching us what it means to bow down. And that's the unique aspect of Satan. You don't see that in Paradise Lost, for example. In Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, you see a certain tragic aspect. There's like this beautiful soliloquy in the book where the devil is made to say, you know, by some ill-fated tragic circumstances I've been appointed to negate he says right but I don't want to negate right and Enoch Hazar actually sees uh, Iblis in the same way he says if you look at the shahada la ilaha illallah shaitan is the la right but you don't get the la ilaha illallah unless if you have the la you need the no the no is very important so it's kind of interesting that that parallel really struck me Dostoevsky says his Satan says um, I don't want to be a negator in one passage, he goes, I just want to be uh, an overweight wife of a butcher singing, uh, singing praises to God. That's all that I really want. I want. That's what I want to come back as. I don't want to have this job where I'm misguiding people all the time. And, and then he says, everybody needs a journal. And in the journal, there always has to be a criticism column. That's very similar to what Enoch Hazad is talking about. So, but where he soars is in this question of love. For him, it's not just Satan as a lover. That's how much of the secondary literature on this topic has painted it. It's much deeper. It's because we also are lovers. And Satan is one of the best examples for us to live a life of love. So that's why in one of his writings, he says, if you knew the story of Iblis, if you really, really understood it, it would become very beloved to you. Why? Because that's what stories are supposed to do, right? Stories speak to you. They speak to your soul. They speak to who you are. And and it's so much more direct than just like a treatise. It's not just an abstract thing. Why? Because we all are stories, right? We're all, you know, books in progress, right? Treatises in progress. We all have a criticism column, right? Some more than others. <laughs> some, <laughs> exactly. some more than others. So, I mean, we're sitting here and we're thinking, wow, like, okay, this is some edgy yeah, stuff. Like, this stuff. Is, <laughs> how was this received in his time? Was there a backlash to Enochazad? Often when people talk about Enochazad, if they're not familiar with the writings, and they, maybe they know some of the secondary literature, this is what they'll commonly say. Oh yeah, Enochazad, his ideas will come up and they'll say, okay, well, what was he talking about? I'll tell them. And then they'll be like, well, no wonder he was killed. Look at these crazy views that he had, right? You go up there on the member and you're talking about Satan like this, they're going to kill you. But of course that's not the case, right? Enochazad, many of his most controversial ideas were not publicly so well known. A lot of them were enshrined in letters that he wrote to students that were not circulated widely until after his death. His major book, Tamhidat, which was available for public consumption for those who could read it, which were based largely on his public discourses, many of these ideas are in there, his defense of Satan, things like this. But when the government decided to kill him, 
they produced like a list of reasons why they were doing that. And they never draw on these ideas as like evidence of why he was a heretic. They called him a heretic. And the reason they did that is because the Seljuks, when they wanted to do away with the person, as has been common in Islamic history and other epochs in human history, where you have like a logocentric kind of universe and, and heresy means something, all you got to do is say this person's a heretic. You, you get enough support from the ulama and you kill the guy. So what was he really doing? He had students that worked for the Seljuk government. Omid Safi has written a brilliant book called The Politics of Knowledge in Pre-Modern Islam. And he has one chapter in there on, on Enel Quzat. And it's, it's an incredible chapter because what he does is he goes through all of Enel Quzat's letters and he shows beyond the shadow of a doubt that there was nothing wrong with Enel Quzat's views in the eyes of the ulama. In fact, when they criticized him of certain views, they were actually all Ghazali's views. And Enel Quzat says, he goes, the same man that you championed, the Seljuk state put up on this pedestal, the same guy who you guys loved and who was like a representative of so-called orthodoxy and all of these things, you're now going to kill me for those views. These are his views, right? So that was a bitter irony of it. But Omid Safi shows that what was really happening was Enoch Wazat was like telling his students, you know, you work for corrupt people. And he couldn't have spiritual disciples working for money hoarders. And he says, he goes, these people are giving out, you know, those iqtas, those portions of land. Mm-hmm especially to the aristocracy. And he says, they're giving these iqtas out like they're parts of paradise. And you guys are just sucking this all up. And what's happening? There's people dying of hunger, of starvation. And you have been told to like, you know, live a life of poverty and brokenness and you're living a spiritual life. What is all this money you're searching for? If the, he, in one passage he says, the prophet says, seek knowledge even unto China, the famous uh, hadith. He says, I'm afraid that you follow a man that says, seek the dunya even unto China. Go seek the world. And if, if whatever this king tells you to do, the Sultan Mahmud, you'll just go do it. So he, he, was, he really criticized his students. He said to them, don't work for the government. And not only did he do that, but he publicly preached that. He's a mufti. He's a, he's a judge in Hamadan. And a lot of people, they're listening to him. The Seljuks had to get rid of him for that reason. And so what they did was they constructed a very sloppy case, a very, very sloppy case, haphazardly put together, threw him in jail in Iraq um, for a short period of time, and they allowed him to write a defense. So he writes this defense where he says, these are the reasons I should not die. And he knew that he was going to be killed anyway. And so then a few, maybe a few months in prison, they then send him back to Hamadan and they, and they kill him and that's the end of it. But the image of Enoch Quzat that lives on in the tradition is one um, of a, somebody who was martyred uh, as precisely a tragic figure and as a hero of love. So whereas we see today a lot of people kind of recycling this idea that Enoch Quzat was this, this martyr because of his so-called antinomian ideas, um, that idea actually is largely supported by these later hagiographic sources because people got to make sense of like, why was this guy killed? And often they weren't good political historians. They didn't know what was going on. Some of these guys are just writing history books 300 years later, tabaqat literature, and they're like, well, he was killed because, well, he, it says here that he said Satan was great. That's why. Makes total sense. So so it, it's kind of a, it's, it's a, it's a misunderstanding that's perpetuated in the literature, but there's something else. Enoch Quzat also says, and again, this is following a Sufi trope that goes back to Halaj. He says that in one of his writings, he actually predicts that he's going to die. He says, he goes, I've also let out a certain secret. Because of that secret that I've let out, God himself is going to see that I die. And so this follows a Sufi teaching called, Ifsha sirru bi kufr. 
un- unveiling or putting out in the public the secret of lordship is unbelief. So Yenu Khuzar says that I've incited God's jealousy, ghayrat. And God's jealousy demands that when I let out the fundamental oneness of things and the unity of lover and beloved, the ghayrat must come in between the two of us and put an end to my life. But he says I had to bring it out there for all of us, for the benefit of people like us today talking about this. When we're talking about divine jealousy, why would God, in this case, not want people to know the secret? The way the Sufis explain these things is they say things like, you know, that fundamental oneness between lover and beloved, it cannot be put into words. The minute it's put into words, it simultaneously reveals and conceals. So it at once kind of gives you a key and an insight into the way things really are, but by virtue of that very same fact, there's also an iltibas or a kind of covering up. And he says that the reason God doesn't want that secret to come out, it's for the same reason that the secret between lovers should never come out, right? There are certain things that happen between lovers that nobody should ever know about, right? It's private. And so between God and his or her or its beloveds, whatever you want to call God, it's the same thing. There's a very special connection in secret that has to always be maintained. If it comes out, the reason God does away with that person is that so he doesn't want that secret coming out anymore. But by the very same token, it's not a punishment for that person. It's actually just a natural consequence of uh, the end of their love. Like they say, Halaj said, An al-Haq. He shouldn't have said it because it was an imperfection. right? The, the, the greater perfection is to say An al-Haq within and never reveal it. But had Halaj not done that, Sufism was at a point when it was falling into much obscurity. So he gave it, he kind of renewed Sufism by uttering an al-haq and knowing what was going to happen to him. Many other Sufis said things that were way crazier than that and they never were killed for it, right? So it depends on the context, it depends on many things. But for someone like Enu Quzat, the reason he had to die for revealing this secret is because he revealed it so uh, so explicitly, right? Especially in the Tamhidat. The book ends with, uh, he reports a dream that a friend of his had, a certain Sheikh Amuli, that he sees the Prophet in his dream. And the Prophet talks to Enu Quzat in the dream. So in the dream of this Sheikh. And he tells Enu Quzat, show me what's in your hand. And Enu Quzat takes out the book, Tamhidat, gives it to him. The Prophet looks at it and he says, uh, do not put any more secrets than these out into the open. So in Khuzad, the book ends like this. He says, when Sheikh Amuli told me this dream and I heard the Prophet's instructions from him, he goes, I stop. I'm going to stop writing this book, right? And I'm waiting for the next set of instructions from the Prophet, <laughs> right? So, he, so, so it, it was very clear that, that he, he pushed the limits. He pushed the, the, the divine and human barrier always must be there. That duality um, by, uh, by virtue of uh, how unreal it really is, it also is extremely real. Again, because of the embodiment and the very situatedness of the human uh, situation, the human condition, that kind of um, dichotomy between subject and object must obtain for the world to continue. But in truth, it's, it's right? the, the, the subject and object are one. It's like a circle the story of satan you know how does it influence your life how does it influence yeah. <laughs> uh your scholarship right yes. <laughs> um other than you know you're publishing on it but <laughs> <laughs> right exactly but, um, yeah like what do you want the listeners to take away from the islamic theology of satan and as well as Enoch Ghazat's larger point about yes, his yeah. defense i think one of the main things that um really affected me when i was when i read Enoch Ghazat's defense of satan apart from the utter beauty of just uh, the manner in which he 
sets out to, you know, exonerate him for for anything that might have looked like a wrongdoing, right? Is that it gives you a very universal kind of a merciful eye towards things, right? All of a sudden, you can look at any anything once you once you can see good in in Satan, then you can start. You can pretty much see good in anything else, right? So Anokosat has that view, and that's that's one of the things that human beings should walk away with, right? Start loving people, even your worst enemy. You it doesn't hurt you at all to love them. Doesn't mean you have to go become best friends with them, but just you know, have have a certain kind of mercy towards any and all people, right? So that that's a very practical teaching that I that I've benefited greatly from, and I think it it can it can help people. Um, but also, you know, because Satan is such a tragic uh, and uh, uh, and fallen lover, who in many ways uh, doesn't seem to really have his own freedom, right? It really problematizes the relationship between human agency and uh, determinism. So you know, like. Enochozan wouldn't be like a libertarian. He wouldn't, wouldn't have some view that says, well, human beings are just free to do whatever they want. Um, people who don't necessarily believe in God also ne- are, are not always libertarian. Something, sometimes people believe that past causes just totally determine our actions. And our genetics and our DNA also lends itself uh, very much to a view that, 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 that comes very close to that, right? Like we're lar- our actions are largely determined by uh, pre-existing circumstances and so on. Um, so, but Enoch Ozad sees Satan as kind of like this, you know, kind of like a kind of like a pawn, but in a chess match, you know, so there's some room for latitude, but not so much. And and what does he do? He gladly accepts um, his fate. So I'm not saying that people should walk away from this thinking that they should just accept their fate in life because some people don't have uh, good circumstances. They should get out of them. Of course, they should seek to get out of them. Um, but, you know, we should. Th- there should be a certain point, um, you know, when there's a certain content contentedness that just comes with your place in the world, and we see this happen by force of nature to many older people, right? And that that's kind of just natural. I have no more energy to find whatever, right? But but right now, right for for from people who are especially they're young and they they have the energy to do so, right? Um, try to you know learn from Satan. Look look at look at the way he. Uh, first of all, it's not. It's it's actually iblis. It's not Satan. There's actually two very different. Iblis is addressed w- um, by God in the Quran uh, in in a loving way. Yeah, iblis. He calls him yeah iblis. But Satan, Shaitan is actually they're they're literally like almost like two different characters, right? But iblis, he has this you know this this total willingness and acceptance. He never tries to defend himself or like he's just like sure, and that kind of like openness to your circumstances. And to your own fate, and 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 to other people, lends itself just to just to a better kind of uh, living for all, all people, right? You don't you you stop looking at people and yourself with such suspicion. You start saying, look, you know, if if we can learn something from Iblis, it's that you know we just have to cultivate that eye of love that Enochozat was talking about. That's the main that's the main point I think to walk away with. Thank you, Muhammad. I learned a lot today, and also learned a lot from. Satan. So of course, of course. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure talking to you. This is this is wonderful. Thank you. So for our listeners, once again, that was Mohammed Rostam, associate professor at Carleton University and the senior research fellow at the Library of Arabic Literature at NYU Abu Dhabi. As usual, please join the conversation by writing to us on social media, Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Until next time. Thank you.